Galatians 4, verses 4 through 6, page 974. Verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for speaking to us through your word. Lord, we thank you for uh, sending us your Son to be the living word to, to dwell among us. Lord, we thank you for saving us and, and for, for giving us the identity as your Son and an heir. And Lord, uh, forgive us for going back to uh, the principles of the world and, and the things that have enslaved us, like seeking approval from man or, or simply desiring comfort. Lord, forgive us for not expressing our gratitude to you and for taking for granted the, the salvation that you have freely given us. And Lord, we pray that the truth that we are your beloved children and that we are heirs of God would, would lead us to no longer be enslaved by our sins, but that in response to, to your amazing grace, we would live lives that please and honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Good to be here in God's house this morning. So thankful for the opportunity to sing praises, to pray to our God, and to open up His Word. And uh, so today we're going to be in Galatians chapter 4, and we're going to be in Galatians chapter 4 uh, for the entire holiday season, the Advent season here. And as we come to this text, um, I find it to be an amazing text on the Advent of Jesus Christ. Here, Paul, in few words, draws our attention to God the Father's divine plan in sending His Son, to God the Son's humility in being born of a woman and born under the law, to God the Son's mission of the redemption of His people, and to God the Father's response of adoption, and lastly, as we'll look at, God the Spirit's coming to live within His people, the indwelling of His people. Some have seen this as an early hymn or a creed uh, that the early church would have had. Um, Kevin DeYoung says, if it wasn't the first Christmas carol, it should have been. Um, we don't know if that was the case. Um, but it's definitely this highly condensed, highly packed set of few words that declare some glorious truths of God. And so today we want to look at that. And today we're going to focus on the first two phrases here in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, we're going to look at that phrase there, and then God sent forth his son. So hopefully, God will use these two phrases this morning to encourage our heart, to strengthen us, um, to help us to see the, the, uh, greatness of our God and the glory of this Advent as we even come this morning as a church to uh, the communion table, that uh, these texts would help us to exalt our Savior Jesus Christ and what He has come to do. So would you join me in prayer this morning? Father, we 
thank you for these texts, and we ask that you would give grace to us this morning as we seek to look into them. Lord, may you be uh, good to us. Uh, May you uh, feed us with your word. May we find nourishment, and may it strengthen us in our spiritual lives. Lord, may we live in ways that truly are consistent with your word, that truly express our dependence upon your word, that, that truly show that we, we are your people. Lord, we, we come asking that, that as you give us strength, we would live in ways that bring you glory. Oh Lord, may that be true of us. Lord, may that be true of your church across the globe today. Lord, we pray for Ridgewood Baptist Church and We pray for them in this transition time, Lord, that you would give uh, grace to them as they seek to, uh, they seek your will in moving forward, but specifically today as they come together and they gather around your word, Lord, may you be refreshing to them. Lord, we uh, pray for Pastor Kip at Bible Baptist Church that you would use the word in the life of his people today as they continue to uh, determine how you would like them to to, to use their facility that's been a school for so long and now is vacant, Lord, how that they could bless their community and be a furtherance to your kingdom and your gospel. Lord, we pray that you would give them wisdom and grace, but this morning as they come to your word, may they find refreshment, may they find fullness, Lord, may they find strength in your word. Lord, we come with that great desire and knowing that you are a great God who is a, is a giver of good things to your people. Lord, you will not withhold that with which we need. So may we trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, my main point is this. Uh, The advent of Jesus declares the sovereignty and initiative of God the Father. The advent of Jesus declares the sovereignty and initiative and initiative of God the Father. So we're going to start with point number one here, God's sovereignty in the fullness of time. As we come to Scripture, we find that the idea of God's sovereignty is not something new that Paul just presents here in Galatians chapter 4. In fact, it is seen throughout Scripture. We could go to Uh, We could go to the beginning of time and see God's sovereignty over all things in Genesis. He's the one who creates it all. He's the one who places order over it all. He's the one who creates man. He's the one who gives man responsibility. Uh, We see that in in the the Pentateuch, in the first five books, in the writings there. We see it in the writings of the poetic books. Throughout the psalm, the psalmist is declaring the sovereignty of God, that he does whatever he pleases. We see it in the historical writings. Um... 2 Chronicles 20, verses 5 and 6, Jehoshaphat is standing before the assembly of Judah and of Jerusalem in the house of the Lord, and he says, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Not only him, but Isaiah the prophet declares to God's people, God's words, when he says, our God is in the heavens. Uh, that's Psalms, I'm sorry. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Or Isaiah in chapter 46, verse 9 and 10, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, 
and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all that I purpose. Or even from the voice of a uh, non-Jewish king, King Nebuchadnezzar, who after God humbles him, he says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heavens and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? As Paul here in Galatian talks about this idea of the fullness of time, that God is bringing about his plan. He's not pulling something new. He's pulling something very old that's always been consistent. God does what he does. God does all that he pleases. God God is able to do all that he desires and nothing can thwart him, nothing can stay him. In fact, we come to the New Testament and Paul doesn't just write this idea in Galatians, but he writes it in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. In him we have an, obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Or when he writes to Timothy in Timothy chapter 6, he says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ who is his testimony before Pontius Pilate made a good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. The sovereign one, will ultimately do what He wants to do. The promise of the advent of Jesus Christ and the promise of the return of Jesus Christ is similar in the sense that God will bring it about at the proper time, in the fullness of time. That God is sovereign. What do we learn from all these verses, from all these texts that will help us understand what it means here that God would bring about His plan in the fullness of time? That God governs all things. He governs all things. And His government is permanent. None can topple it. None can stay it. None can stop it. None can stand against it. He will do what He will do. He cannot be overthrown, nor does He need our consent to do what He desires to do. He will bring about His plan in the fullness of time. To refuse to submit to His authority we see from Scripture is both folly and immoral. It's sin. In fact, Acts 17 says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. In that verse, In that verse in Acts there, Luke is describing the fact that God is sovereign. He has a day He's appointed. No one's going to stop that day from coming. There's no appeals that we can make in court to say, can we move that farther away? 
No, there's appointed a day that's coming. But not only that, we read that God Himself has appointed the judge of that day. The one who's going to judge it is Jesus Christ. And God has appointed Him to be the judge. Again, demonstrating God's sovereignty. We're not, He's not waiting on our consent for Jesus to judge us. He will judge us. And He's shown that He has this power by raising Him from the dead. All these verses affirm the fact that God is sovereign. And so when we come to a passage like this and it reads, but when the fullness of time had come. We need to understand this is God's time frame. This is God's plan. And when God determined it would be the right time for Jesus to come, Jesus came. God's plan would not be thwarted. So not only do we have this, the uh, the sustaining verses on God's sovereignty, but also we have God's sovereignty displayed throughout His progressive revelation. That as we look through Scripture and we see how God has orders all things, we can begin to see the wisdom of God in, the, in, in how He has created this plan. Now, can we see it all fully? No, of course not. We don't have that kind of wisdom. As David said, His ways are not my ways. And that's true. When we come here, we might think, well, I wouldn't have done it that way, or I don't think that way would have, but that's just our foolishness. God has a perfect plan that He has been, he has been working from all throughout the life uh, of, of the planet, all throughout the life of this universe, all throughout the life of mankind. He has been working and unfolding this plan, unfolding this story of redemption. That starts in the Garden of Eden. And God wasn't caught by surprise when Adam and Eve sinned. The fact is we read later that the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, was slain before the very foundations of the world. That that was God's plan to bring about the redemption of God's people through the sacrifice of His Son. The advent of Jesus is part of God's amazing, wonderful, wise plan that He has begun from the beginning. And He has been unfolding that redemption. And so we read, uh, after the fall of Adam and Eve, what is the promise? That the woman will have a seed that will crush the head of the serpent. That there's this promise of a Redeemer. That when that when Eve has her first child, Cain, she names him Cain, meaning from God, thinking this is the one possibly from God. Now obviously she got it wrong, right? We know about Cain. He kills his brother. He doesn't sacrifice himself. He chooses to sacrifice someone else, which tends to be how we choose to live in our sin. Um, we're not looking to live selflessly. We're looking to live selfishly in our sin. Cain demonstrates the very sinfulness that was in the heart of Adam and Eve and in the heart of every one of us. But what does God continue to do? God continues to give His promise to those who are His people. He gives it to Noah. He gives it to Abraham specifically. That from from the seed of Abraham, an offspring would come. An offspring, not offsprings. And Paul makes that clear in Galatians. The promise was ultimately for the one who would come, Jesus Christ, who fulfills all the promises of God. All the promises are yes in Jesus Christ. 
as we look at the story of redemption, we see the promises being made to God's people, to Abraham. And then we come to God's people being captive in Egypt. And yet that's part of God's plan too, that that through the captivity of Egypt, he's going to paint the gospel story over that and he's going to hear the cries of his people and deliver them. Not Not because they deserved it, not because they earned it, but because God is gracious. And he pulls them out of Egypt and out of their slavery and he brings them to the mountain of God and he gives them his law so that they might know him and follow him. And the law is given to unpack the promise. The law is given to help them see how this promise is meant to be fulfilled in their lives. And yet, what does the law also do? It reveals our sinfulness. How desperately we need the promise of God to be fulfilled. Because the law in and of itself wasn't meant to justify us. Rather, it was given after the people were brought out to God. After God had saved them, the law was given. It couldn't justify, but it points to the justifier, to Jesus Christ. That's why when in Galatians 3, Paul writes, verse 17, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. So the law was given to point us and lead us to the very fulfillment of the promise, which is Jesus Christ. The law was a pathway. The law was a guardian. The law was a guide to bring us to Christ. And it's so, it's so amazing when you get to the gospel and what does Jesus often say to the Pharisees, to the Sadducees, to the scribes, to the religious leaders? Have you not read? Do you not know the Scriptures? Why does He call them to that? Because they all point to Him. This the whole uh, plan of God and redemption from Genesis all the way up to the Gospel, it was all leading up to the fullness of time when Jesus Christ would come. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the promise. Later in chapter 3 of Galatians, verse 22, Paul writes, but the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, you are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. The law was meant to bring us to Jesus Christ. Every aspect of the law was pointing to the one who would come, who would live it perfectly, and whom we are to put our faith in. Progressive revelation leads to that. And what do we see? We do see, and this is emphasized a lot, that the Jews as a whole rejected the offspring that was promised, rejected the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. Rejected finding their justification in faith in 
him. But it's not true of everyone. Every Jew. Generally, it was true. We have many examples in the Gospels of Jewish people born under the law. And we're going to look at being born under the law next week. Um, But we have examples of Jewish people who are born under the law who see the fulfillment of the law in Jesus Christ. We see it in Joseph. We see it in Mary. I mean, specifically though in Joseph, how is he described? An upright man. Someone who sought to uphold the law. Who honored the law. Who cared about the law. And yet, what do we find? That he believes in the angel's prediction that Mary's child is the Son of God. The one promise. We see people like Zechariah and Elizabeth who are the parents of John the Baptist. I mean, what's Zechariah doing when he's introduced to us? He's going into the temple and serving as a priest there. And what ultimately do we see? We see as Mary goes to Elizabeth's home and their, the baby John in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy because this is, this is our Lord. This is the promised Messiah. This is the Savior. We see people who were born under the law who understood that the law was pointing them to the one who would come, the Messiah, the Christ. We see it in Simeon and Anna in Luke 2. What's going on there? Well, one, we got Simeon who was promised by God somehow through, through the Spirit, through the Word, that he would not die until he saw the promised one come. And he believed that by faith. And he was in the temple and Jesus is brought there and he has this glorious proclamation about who Jesus is. That he is the Messiah. This is the one that we have been waiting for. Why is it there? It's to proclaim Jesus as the the Messiah, yes, but also to proclaim that the law was meant to lead people to Jesus Christ. Simeon, who rightly understood the law, found his hope in Jesus. Anna, Anna as well there in Luke 2, rightly, rightly following God found her hope in Jesus Christ. Why? Because this is the fullness of time. God laid out His plan so that through the promise to Abraham, through the law, the Mosaic laws, that, that His people might be pointed directly to the Savior to come, Jesus Christ. This is God's glorious, sovereign plan. And I don't want us to miss it. I don't want us to miss how glorious the Old Testament is because it proclaims to us how our sovereign God works. But not only that, number two, God's initiative in the sending of His Son. God's initiative in the sending of His Son. So as Paul writes this wonderful creedal hymn here, but when the fullness of time had come, when God's plan was at its fullness, what happens? God sent forth His Son. As Charles Spurgeon once said, we moved not towards the Lord, but the Lord towards us. I do not find that the world in repentance sought its maker. No, but the offended God 
himself in infinite compassion, broke the silence and came forth to bless his enemies. As we, if we understand what Spurgeon is saying, we understand what this text is saying in light of what the rest of the Scripture says in verses like Romans 5.8 and Romans 5.10. While we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. It was God's initiative to send His Son to us. It was God's desire, God's plan, um, God moving of His own free will to send His Son for us. Something we did not deserve. Something we could not earn. And yet God in His gracious, loving kindness gives His Son for us. Now in this verse, we can affirm, I want to affirm two things. First, that the, ascend, that the sending of the Son affirms the Son's eternality. Jesus was sent, interestingly enough, in the way this is phrased, prior to His being born. You see that? God sent forth His Son, born then of a woman. No one else has existed before their birth. That's not something that normally occurs. That we come into existence as we are brought to life in the womb of the mother. And yet here we find Jesus is being described as being sent prior to his birth. What is going on? I believe it is the, uh, the, the support for the eternality of Jesus Christ, of His Sonship. Of course, we here have affirmed that Jesus is God, so therefore this is not surprising to us, hopefully at all. But if it's new to you, we declare that Jesus Christ has always existed, that as in Colossians 1, He was there at the creation of the world, creating, that He is the one sustaining the world. We affirm what He says in John 8. As as the Jews were talking about their father Abraham, he says this, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before he was, I am. That name, claiming the name that was given to Moses on the mountain, whom should I tell is sending me? I am who I am. Jesus here, not just affirming his eternality, but affirming his deity as well. He is one with the Father. And one with the Spirit. Three persons in one, the Trinity. In Revelation 22.13, we see Jesus claiming these words for Himself. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Always existing. There is no beginning without Jesus. There is no end without Jesus. He has always existed. Or in John 1, verses 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. That when God sent forth His Son, 
He was not one that God created, but rather he exists with God always, eternally. And in the divine plan of God, it was determined that God the Father would send the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, and God the Son willingly submitted to this plan. Willing to be the substitute. Willing to humble himself so that He might then redeem His people. But this sending also affirms our need to respond. It's interesting as we come to Christmas, there's a bit of an entitlement to it. Everyone is supposed to get gifts, right? Kids, do you think that's true? Everyone's supposed to get gifts? Yeah? I think so, right? I, I should get a gift. You should get a gift. We all think we deserve gifts, but, but the problem with that is that that goes against the very definition of what a gift is. A gift is something that is undeserved. Something that is not a necessary, required thing. And yet, we come to Christmas nowadays and we often think we are entitled to the gifts that we get. We are looking forward to that opportunity. But the gift of Jesus, the gift of justification, is not an entitlement for anyone. Rather, it is the gracious gift of God. It is given not because there are any demands placed upon God, It is not because it is owed to His creation. Rather, it is given graciously and freely. And the call that is given to God's gift is that we would repent and believe. In fact, just as He says the fullness of time had come in God's plan to send His Son, so also we read in Scripture that now is the day of repentance. Now is the time when all of us should fall on our knees before our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the opportunity to embrace Jesus. Now, that may be something that you've never heard before. Maybe the gospel is something new to you. And the idea of coming and repenting, turning from your sins and believing that the Son, that Jesus, that, Jesus that was sent by the Father was sent for you to save you from your sins. I would encourage you to come and repent and believe. Maybe it's something that is you've heard many times. You've heard this gospel over and over and over again. And your heart has been hard to it. I would say as you hear it again today, that God the Father lovingly, graciously sent His Son to earth. It's a little baby in a manger taking on not just the humility of becoming a man, but becoming a baby who grew up and lived a perfect life, who, who was born under the law and yet, and yet fulfilled all that the law required, who gave his life as a ransom, as a substitute, who took the sins of his people on himself, 
and bore those sins and paid for those sins and who gives righteousness to all who will believe in Him. Who rose again from the dead to proclaim His glorious promises are true. To you, I say, as you hear it again, repent, believe. To us who know the gospel well, who have trusted in Him, who look to Him as our hope, let us not look at it as an entitlement. Let us be reminded that we are not somehow better or different from everyone else in the world. We too are sinners who are in desperate need of a Savior. And it is only by God's grace, only by His grace, that we are given any hope of eternal life. As we in the past have repented and believed, so now we must continue to believe and continue to wrap our hope in the fact that Jesus Christ alone, Jesus Christ alone is the foundation of our hope. That our lives are meant to be lived with the same kind of response that the Son had to the Father. In His eternal plan, the Father sent the Son. And what do we read? The Son willingly, obediently submitted to the will of the Father. And in fact, all throughout His life in the Gospels we read, what is it said? He continued to do the will of of his father and as we who know the gospel we who have trusted we who believe we who are now living in light of the fact that we have a savior jesus christ we too are called therefore to live in obedience to live under this gracious and loving father who has provided for us his own son oh it's not an entitlement it is a gracious gift that we will we will be eternally grateful for and we need to live now grateful for that gift as we come into this advent season i hope that uh, as you come into it you would see the great and glorious plan of our sovereign god and you would see his loving work and initiative in sending his Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your truth, and we ask that you would continue to bless your truth. Lord, as we, as we sing this song that will draw us into communion, Lord, may we, may we ex- be excited about uh, how your Son, Jesus Christ, came. May we be excited to see how you, you graciously and lovingly gave. Maybe we'd be excited to see that this was your plan all along and that you are trustworthy and true. Lord, as we, as we exalt you, uh, may our hearts be filled with the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.